hate to cut the conversation short. Um, always love the hustle and bustle of greeting time, right? The room just comes alive and we're getting to know one another. And um, so thankful that you all are here this morning. Uh, can we give another round of applause for John Arndt and the string quartet? Um, Man, if we could have that every Sunday morning, I would just be in a happy place. Uh, if you guys aren't aware of uh, John Arndt's music, he's in a band called The Brilliance, and uh, they're amazing, amazing musicians, and uh, they're actually coming out with a new album this January, which you should be on the lookout for. We sing a lot of their music here. You might not know that, but we do. And uh, the songs that we did this morning, he arranged all of those songs for a string quartet and had his hand in writing them as well. So um, we're going to hear more from him and the string quartet a little bit later. Um, but before we do that, uh, I get the honor and the privilege of speaking to what is my favorite core value of ours here at Awaken, and that is the value of beauty. Um, I'm really fascinated by the word. Are you guys fascinated by the word beauty? Yeah, it kind of evokes something in us, right? When you hear it, when you say it, we use it a lot, right? We use it a lot for a lot of different kinds of things. I think that's really interesting. So like picture your favorite weather in Minnesota in the summertime. At least for me, it's the summertime. Um, you wake up in the morning, you get ready, you open your front door, you walk outside, and it's the same temperature outside as it is inside. That's my favorite, like 72 degrees. It's the best. It's blue sky, the birds are chirping. You walk out on your front step, and what do you say? What a beautiful morning, right? We call our children beautiful. We call movies beautiful. We call moments beautiful, right? If you have in a moment with a friend where you like go really deep and you see each other, you really see each other, I would call that a beautiful moment. Or if you like really belly laugh super hard together about something, maybe it's nothing at all, but all of a sudden you just start laughing really hard, you would call that a beautiful moment. I hope that here at Awaken, you've left the gathering at least once or twice saying, oh, what a beautiful service. As the music and arts director, I really hope that at least one or two of you have said that um, at one point. That means I'm doing my job. Um, but yeah, these times that we're together, that we gather together, we sing together, it's beautiful. It's been fun as I've been preparing for this message, um, and I tell people, oh, I'm speaking at Awaken, and they're like, oh, what are you speaking on? And I say, beauty. Um, almost every response is the same. People are like, ah, beauty, like a deep sigh. Or we say, ooh, beauty. You know, like, there's just something that's really um, enticing to our souls about beauty. I don't think I'm the only one fascinated by beauty. I did a little bit of research uh, in the last couple of weeks online. The beauty industry, so meaning the things that you buy, like beauty products to make yourself more physically attractive, um, that industry in 2019 was a $532 billion industry. Ooh, that's a lot of money, $532 billion. Another little gem I came across while I was surfing the net, gathering info this week, um, was an article online by the Economic Times. If we could put that slide up there. This was the headline. It says, science says this is the most beautiful woman in the world. Uh, this is the uh, quote from it. Supermodel Bella Hadid is her name. 
She has been declared the most beautiful woman in the world after she passed a science test that determines what constitutes the perfect face. Apparently, she's got the closest thing that we know to the perfect face. The 23-year-old was found to be 94.35% accurate to the golden ratio of beauty phi. Apparently, that's a thing. It's like an ancient Greek measure of physical perfection. Uh, should we take a look at some of the runner-ups? Okay. Uh, in second place, the queen bee herself. Yeah, let's give her a round of applause. I love Beyonce. Um, she's 38 years old. At 38 years old, she was second in second place. It's pretty good, right? 92.44% she got. In third place was this woman, Amber Heard. She's a supermodel. Never heard of her. <laughs> did you see what I did there? <laughs> got it? Uh, she came in third at 91.85%. And last but not least, we have sweet little Ariana Grande. There she is, 26. She came in at 91.81%. Uh, this is another quote from the article. Sciences have since adapted the mathematical formula to explain what makes a person beautiful. Hadid had the highest overall reading for her chin, which with a score of 99.7%, is only 0.3% away from being perfect. So close. <laughs> Um, she came into second uh, to Scarlett Johansson for her eye positioning, though. Um, Dr. Silva, who's a cosmetic surgeon in London, said this about her. She said, she is one of the new generation of supermodels and could dominate the profession for the next decade with her stunning looks. Her biggest weakness is in the brow area. <laughs> Poor girl, right? <laughs> Those brows will get you. On that note, where I'd love to start this morning in our conversation about beauty is by saying that this, can you put that last slide back up there? This right here, this isn't it. Like this is not beauty, at least not true beauty. I'm not saying that they're not beautiful people, like of course they are. But when our society makes the outward appearance of human beings something to be weighed, measured, defined, achieved, and sought after, it becomes something entirely different. It becomes a race to be won. And let me tell you, there are not many winners, and there are a whole lot of losers. And the reason I bring this up this morning is because I think for so many of us, myself included, this has been a struggle for me, male and female alike, I think. We have called this beauty. And I think that's done something to our souls. It's told us that beauty is not for everyone. It's reserved for the few and the favored. And all the while, in most of us, if not all of us, there's this inner longing for beauty, this strong desire for it. And when we look at someone deemed by our society as the most beautiful, and we realize that we're not it, that it's out of our reach, the desire for it within us really dies. And we say we'll never get there. And the shame narrative begins, right? We'll never be beautiful, we'll never, never be called beautiful. Speaking of shame narratives, let's just keep the good times rolling this morning. Uh, the Awakened staff is reading a book right now called Stamped from the Beginning, 
The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America. And man, it's a heavy read. It's about 500 pages long. Um, and although it's, it's just extremely horrifying um, information to take in. I've never been, had so much inner struggle uh, with the book before. I think it's really important information uh, for us to take in, especially white Americans. And especially for people like us here at Awaken, we long to be reconcilers, right? We need to know this stuff. Um, the uh, author, his name is Ibram X. Kendi, he goes way back in history to the mid-1600s and explains in great detail the origins of racism. And I found out that this thing that humanity does to beauty, it was a part of the conversation from the beginning, actually. Um, the way that we reserve beauty for just a certain few played a significant role. He describes how white Europeans, as they began to form and spread an ideology of white supremacy in the mid-1600s, one of the concepts that drove it was the thought that white skin is more beautiful than black skin. About a third of the way through the book, Kendi quotes a guy named, this is a fun name to say, Johann Joachim Winkelmann. <laughs> Super fun name to say. Uh, he's a German man, uh, described as the foundational thinker in modern European art history. So he's a big deal. And he is quoted as saying this, a beautiful body will be all the more beautiful the whiter it is. Question for you. What do you think God thinks about this part of our humanity? This part of ourselves that seems to crave beauty so deeply, but also seems inclined to say, there, there it is. That's true beauty, and there's a sliding scale that measures what is inherently beautiful against what is not, and all of us seem to fall somewhere on that scale. What do you think that the divine being that breathed all of creation into existence, that spoke all of creation into existence, what does God think of that? Well, I don't claim to know the mind of God. I hope that I never do claim to know the mind of God, but I do believe that there's a story in scripture that will help reveal to us what God might think about the true nature of beauty, and that will help us as awaken to understand why this value is so important to us, and it'll help us know better how to hold it and how to engage with it. So if you are able, please stand with me, and let's read a passage of scripture together. If you have your Bible open to Genesis chapter 2, we're going to read verses 4 through 9, and then verse 15 together. So let's read this aloud. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But a mist came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it 
and take care of it. Amen. You may be seated. So I recently went on a trip to Paris. How many have been to Paris before? Raise your hand. Oh, isn't it amazing? Um, I had never been before, so I really didn't know what um, I was going to see. I had an idea, you know, just from movies and things like that. But I didn't know quite what I would see when I would get there. I did meet up with a friend from Awaken on day two of my trip, but I specifically planned to arrive by myself uh, for a couple different reasons. The first one is that it was kind of a bucket list thing. I wanted to do international travel by myself and kind of prove to myself that I could do it. So check, did that, it was really good. And I also just had a feeling, uh, just from what I'd heard about the beauty of that city, that arriving alone and taking it in, all the sights, sounds, smells for myself would be something that I would enjoy. And boy, was I right. I arrived midday to Charles de Gaulle Airport, got on a train. Uh, the train was above ground for about the thir first 30 minutes of the trip, but before it actually entered into Paris proper, it descended underground. So I'm in this train, it's super crowded, it's kind of dark, kind of dingy. I'm really tired. <laughs> um, I get to my stop and I climb up about three flights of stairs, carrying all my bags. I'm just like trudging up the stairs. But even though I was like tired and trudging up these dark, dingy stairs, I was getting so excited. Because <laughs> I just knew, I just had this feeling that it was gonna be really, really beautiful. So I get to the uh, last final steps, of the last flight of stairs, and I can just see the tops of the buildings. And I think at that moment, I might have even said out loud, if not to myself, I was like, no way. <laughs> like, no way this is real. You gotta be kidding me, right? And I was just like, I can't wait to get to the top. So I get to the top, and all I could do was set down my bags, my mouth just like dropped open, and I swear I just stood there for like five minutes, and I was like, oh my word. This is the most beautiful place I've ever been. And I just took it in, I listened, I looked. The white ornate buildings, picture it. The white ornate buildings, street cafes, flowers, everything so intentionally placed and so detailed. And I felt this internal shift happen immediately and I loved it. I longed for it, longed for it in a real way. Paris was beautiful to me. And at that moment, it seemed like it was all for me just to take in, just to delight in. And I wonder, I just wonder if that moment for me in Paris might just be a little glimpse of what the writer of Genesis 2 was trying to, to tell us, what the picture was that the writer of Genesis 2 was trying to paint. So I'm gonna do now, I'm gonna paraphrase this story for us. And I just invite you into your imagination while I do that. So if it helps you to close your eyes, um, you can do that. If not, that's fine. You can keep them open. But I'm going to paraphrase it, and I just want you to breathe into your imagination as I do. The only thing that God, the artist, has brought into existence so far is land, plain and bare. But there's a vapor, a light mist, ascending from the ground like the fog on a cool summer morning. But the mist leaves just enough dust for God, the artist, to fashion into existence something new and precious. Another alive being made to bear the image of the creator, the imaginative genius. Then God does something really wonderful. He gets so close to the being, God gets face to face and breathes 
Breath fills up the being's lungs and the being becomes alive. The being wakes up and sees the face of its creator. Then I like to imagine God saying to the being, hey, walk with me quick. I want to show you something. So they walk along the bare ground and the being's like, oh, cool, ground. Oh, cool, a mist. And then God says, oh, you think that's cool? Just wait. Wait till you see what's next. They keep walking and the being sees something new and they walk up to it. It's this big hedge and above the hedge you can just see the tops of the trees with little glimpses, little flashes of leaves and flowers, bright colors, just enough to whet the being's appetite. They walk up to the door. They wait just one moment to build anticipation. And then God swings the door wide open, and they walk in, and it's breathtaking. Kind of like the Arboretum in Chanhassen during tulip season, but like way better. Imagine the colors, imagine the smells. I like to imagine rich purple flowers, deep red roses, trees with pure white blossoms. And God says, here, here you go. This is for you, this is where you belong. I made you for this, and I made this for you. This morning, friends, I believe that this moment in Genesis 2 tells us so many things about the nature of true beauty, and what I'd love to do is explore that a bit together. It's hard to even narrow it down, but I narrowed it down to four things that I think are important for us to hear this morning. So here we go. Four things about the true nature of beauty that we learned from Genesis 2. Number one. The desire for beauty is good and God-given. Let's look at verse 9 again. again. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. The word translated as pleasing here is actually the Hebrew word kamad. If we can put that slide up. Uh, it's one of those weird Hebrew words that's a noun and a verb. It's actually not an adjective at all. It's both a noun and a verb. As a noun, it's translated as desirableness or preciousness, and it's also translated beauty. So I like to read that. God made to spring up every tree that is beauty. As a verb, it means to desire, to take pleasure in, or to delight in. So there's something really inherent in the beauty of this garden that goes way beyond pretty. The beauty of this garden aroused desire in the being. It's like God was saying, I've made you to want this. Desire it. Interact with it. Get close to it. This is part of what it means to be human. This is part of what it means to be made in my image. So all of that stuff I described at the beginning of my message, the $532 billion beauty industry and the so-called scientific research that goes into identifying the most beautiful woman in the world, I actually don't think the basic instinct for that is bad or evil. So good news, you don't have to go home and throw away your flattening iron, right? Um, I think investing in your own physicality or attractiveness is really actually totally good and fine. But I do think there's a certain headspace that we can get into it where we turn from self-care into self-loathing. And that's just not beauty. 
Also, I think this, that when human beings decide to play God and decide to narrowly define who or what is beautiful or who or what is not, and we believe those claims and we consume them, we're settling for a counterfeit beauty that will never feed us like the beautiful trees fed the first being in Genesis 2. It says, the trees in the garden were beautiful and worthy of being desired, and they were also good, or tov, one of my favorite Hebrew words. The word tov means inherently generative. So it has within itself the ability to create life that creates life, that creates life, that creates life. The beauty we were designed to, to desire, or hamad, is a fountain of life. So please, people of Awaken, don't settle for wanting a counterfeit version of beauty. If the beauty that you're seeking is sucking the life out of you, it's not true beauty. So find the beauty that feeds you. Look for that desire in yourself when you're interacting with something and you're like, I want it. It's good. It's really, really good. Point number two, we get to create true beauty. It's good news, right? Let's read verse 15 together. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. We have a role to play. We get to keep the beauty alive. Now, some of you, uh, when I just said the title of the second point, we get to create true beauty, you immediately dismissed yourself from the conversation because you've told yourself and you tell other people that you're not an artist or that you're not creative, right? If that's you this morning, I just beg you to reconsider. I beg you to remind yourself that if you're made in the image of God, and the first thing we learn about, the God, about God in the whole of the text is that he can't help but create I think that means you're creative. You might not be a painter or a singer or a composer, but maybe you're a homemaker, a teacher, or a mathematician. I gotta say it, I love it when Danny Langseth is sitting right over here. <laughs> when he comes up to give the financial updates, have you guys been here for that? He does it in a way that's so intentionally Danny-like. He puts on his sweater vest, and what does he say? He says, it's sweater vest Sunday. I love it, it's creative, it's fresh. Danny is an artist when he comes up to give the financial update. You see, you don't have to be a four on the Enneagram, like me, or John. And, oh, and Elijah, I love it. We're both fours, it's great. You just need to be you. So who are you? What are you inherently drawn to? What is in the garden that God has uniquely created for you? And can you accept the reality? I think it's a reality that you have an innate ability to keep that garden growing. Author Mirabai Starr says this about the creative life. We put that slide up. When you were a child, you knew yourself to be co-creator of the universe. But little by little, you forgot who you were. When you were a child, everything was about color. Now you pick black as your automatic font color because that is the coin of the realm. When you were a child, you traveled from place to place by dancing. Now you cultivate stillness, which is great, but you were forgetting how to move to the music of your soul. You can hardly even hear the inner music over the clamor of all your obligations. Yes, you are worthy of art making. Dispense with the hierarchy in your head that silences your own creative voice. It is not only your birthright to create, it is your true nature. 
The world will be healed when you take up your brush and shake your body and sing your heart out. The truth about beauty is full of childlike good news, and the good news is, is that we all get to play. So since we're all creative, I would offer this as a suggestion and an invitation for us this morning, myself included, preaching to myself here. How can we invest in our creativity, and how can we then offer it, just like God offered the garden in Genesis 2? This invitation comes with a little warning, little disclaimer, because you know what? Investing in your creative life and then offering it to the world is actually a really vulnerable place to be. It takes guts. So every time you see someone's art out there in the gallery, or when you see people up here singing and playing their instruments, or when Katie Crawford, who's up here, she's showing how intentional each stroke of a painting is when a painter paints it. Stand in awe of that thing. Because it is the deepest part of a human that they are offering to you. Reflective of the heart of an inherently creative God who designed us to be that way. One more thought from Mirabai Star here on the risky nature of an artistic life. She says, if we can go to that other slide, what creative life demands is that we take risks. They may be calculated risks, they may yield entrepreneurial fruits, or they may simply enrich our own lives. Creative risk-taking might not turn our life upside down, but rather might right the drifting ship of our soul. I need that. When we make ourselves available for the inflow of spirit, we accept not only her generative power, but also her ability to overcome whatever stands in the way of our full aliveness. And like my good friend Rabbi Alan Allman always says, if you ain't scared, you ain't there. So, people of Awaken, your original ideas, your creativity matters no matter what it looks like. The question is, are you brave enough and do you deem yourself worthy enough to, number one, make space, number two, take a step, and number three, create? Point number three, true beauty is not superfluous. It is foundational. I think it's really interesting that in Genesis 2, there were no stops on the way to the Garden of Eden. God didn't say, you know what? First, life is all about all of the really functional things that you have to do to get by. That's the most important part. So figure all of that stuff out first, and then when you have time, if you have time, go enjoy the beauty of that garden. He didn't say that. First things first. In our society, especially in America, and even especially in the American church, functionality and utility seem to always win over beauty for some reason. I don't know why. But it has made life for us here, I think, very uneden-like. I have a friend um, here at Awaken that I'd love to introduce you to this morning. If you haven't met her yet, her name's Judy Haugen. Judy, where are you? Over here, come on up. Um, Judy is a friend of mine because we're in the same life group, and uh, she's also a a professor of creative writing at Northwestern University, and she is a very smart woman, <laughs> and she has done a lot of research and uh, writing about this topic, so I just wanted to ask her a couple questions um, about something that's really important to her and something that I've appreciated hearing from her as well. So, how are you? I'm doing fine. You're good. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for coming up here today. Um, the first thing that I'd love for you to talk about and that I've heard you talk about um, 
in, and last May I brought you in to talk to some artists here at Awaken, and you talked about the transcendentals of God, and it was really stirring something awesome in me, so I'd love for you to share uh, with the broader Awaken community this morning, what are the transcendentals of God, and how did you come to learn about them? Yeah, I have only been thinking about the transcendentals of God for about the last 10 years, even though I've been involved in the arts and, and faith communities for since my whole adult life. And because uh, I kind of realized that the transcendentals of God are, and I kept coming across them, so I started thinking about this and reading about them, but the transcendentals of God are qualities of God that are core to the very being of God, who God is. And they're transcendentals because they also transcend. They're not just within God, but they become endowed into everything that God creates. And what I learned too is that uh, one of the reasons I think that I hadn't run across them, even as an educator in you know an artistic genre, is that it's really they've really been kind of uh, tended and safeguarded by uh, more more the Catholic Church or in the Orthodox Church, and now the Protestants I think are making gains. We're starting to play catch up with the transcendentals. So the transcendentals have changed over the centuries. How many there are, what they are, but there are three that have remained very stable and that more or less constitute what we think of as these core qualities of God that are just completely core to God's being, and they are truth. Their goodness and beauty. And as Melody has said, beauty is not synonymous with pretty. When we think about the beauty of God, uh, spiritual beauty, um, it is absolutely bound up in both goodness and truth. So that which is truly good is true and beautiful. And that which is truly beautiful is also good and true. And that which is truly truth is beautiful and good. So it's like a three-legged stool, and if you take out one of the legs, it compromises the whole thing. Uh, for instance, if you divorce goodness and beauty from truth, you can end up very easily with brutality, hmm. for instance. Yeah, mm -hmm. so good. Um, so why do you think, um, why is it important for us to come back to this? Is it something you feel like the church has lost? And why do you think it's important for us to come back mm -hmm. to it? I think it has been lost, and particularly, of course, the Protestant church is a lot younger than the church in general, but I think that we're starting to make gains in recognizing beauty because beauty is just core, I think, to human flourishing in general and spiritual flourishing in particular. Mm -hmm. And all the things that flourishing involves, which you, some of which you talked about, which is desire and wonder and awe and longing and just this desire to be creative because that's part of how we are made in the image of God. And beauty is kind of more pre-rational, it's experiential, mm -hmm. it's not the same as apprehending an abstract idea. And, and in that way, it's very transformational. Experiences uh, transform us. And I think to cap it, what I would say is that uh, beauty, I think, is a lot about transformation. Mm -hmm. And um, Hans Urs von Balthasar, who was a Swiss uh, Catholic theologian in the last century, uh, he said it really well. He said, beauty is a summons to change your life. Wow. And what the church, I think, needs to do, 
what I would love for it to do, is to claim or maybe even reclaim beauty as a category of truth. Yeah. It is itself a form of knowledge of God if we, yeah. if we follow the threads of it uh, that give us an experience of God and a knowing of God that we cannot come by in any other way. Beautiful. Thank you, Judy. Can we thank Judy? Beauty is transformational, which leads me to my final point, and I'll conclude with this this morning. True beauty ushers us into the transcendent moment that we desperately need. If you don't know what transcendent means and beauty, uh, Judy kind of, beauty Judy, those words sound the same, probably on purpose. Um, it's defined as beyond or above the range of normal or merely physical human experience. So you want to know what I think beauty does at the end of the day? I think beauty reminds us that God exists. I think beauty offers us hope and comfort, reminding us that even though the earth and our existence on it seems so full of pain, violence, war, hatred, and tragedy, beauty stands in protest against those things. That's why we need it. Like the poetry of Maya Angelou, or even the book I talked to you about before, Stamped from the Beginning, that book is a work of art. Beauty can shift culture because beauty creates culture. Beauty can help heal our pain. It can help us feel something that we would never be able to feel or name something we would never be able to name otherwise. One of my favorite quotes about this is by Eugene Peterson, who said in his book, Running with the Horses, the artist has eyes to connect the visible and the invisible and the skill to show us complete what we and our inattentive distraction see only in bits and pieces. I wrote a song a few years ago uh, called I Can Still Hear It. It was written during a really, really painful moment in my life. Uh, I was in my mid-20s. I was grieving a lot of loss uh, because my dad had succumbed to a lot of mental illness. My parents' marriage had ended. So I went back to Chicago to help my mom clean out the last bit of stuff from our house. And I was laying on an air mattress in my living room. And it was the middle of the night. And all of like, the memories of that place just like, kind of flooded me. And I just started weeping. And I was like, I'm losing it all. I'm losing it all. It's all gone, you know? But then the comforting thought that I had in that moment was like, no, it's not. It's not all gone. Because my family made music together here. And that music is going to live forever. Beauty lives forever. So I laid there, and I wrote a song. <laughs> and it was one of those songs, probably the only moment maybe that I'll ever have in my life, but it just came out. It was just like flooding out of me. I couldn't stop it. And I wrote that song. And that song healed me in that moment. I needed it. And you know what? That song is still healing me. Every time I think about it, every time I engage with it, it heals me a little bit more, and then a little bit more, and then a little bit more. I think in that moment in my childhood living room, I think that living room became a Garden of Eden. I think those moments, artists of Awaken, 
I think they're available to all of us if we can just open our eyes, open our ears, look for them, listen for them, delight in them, and create them. This morning, I've asked John and uh, the String Quartet uh, to help create a Garden of Eden moment for us. They have a little help from a little name called Felix Mendelssohn. Not a bad guy to have on your team. Um, but they are going to play a Mendelssohn piece uh, for us this morning. And we're just going to listen. And my invitation for you during this moment is to practice. Practice being in the Garden of Eden. Listen for it. Visualize it. Use your imagination, because I think your imagination is actually a really good, beautiful, safe place to be. Let's pray, and then they'll play for us. Pray with me. Creator God, artist God, my prayer is that in this moment, our thoughts would still, our shoulders would relax, and that we would breathe in your presence as we breathe in this beauty that I believe can draw us nearer and nearer to your heart for us. Amen.
Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not, thy compassions they fill not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Great is thy faithfulness, faithfulness morning by morning new mercies I see all I have needed thy hand hath provided great is thy faithfulness Lord unto me now let's all stand together and we're going to sing the next two verses but it's going to be like you remember it so here we go. Summer and winter, springtime and harvest, 
Sun, moon, and stars in their courses above Join with all nature in manifold witness To thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide Strength for today with bright hope for tomorrow Blessings all mine with ten thousand beside Great is thy faithfulness Great is thy faithfulness, morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand provided. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto show our appreciation to John and the Eastern Quartet. And now people of Awaken receive this benediction. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord causes his face to shine upon you. The Lord give you peace. The Lord create a garden of delight for you. You are dismissed. <laughs>